This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook, Volume 2, and today is July 19th, 2023. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Uh, my name is Stephen Mines, and I was at Hofstra Radio from 1970 to 1973. Well, welcome back to the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. It's a real pleasure to have you back. And before we get into your time, I want to take a moment and say thank you for the tremendous interview that you produced with your friend Kev Riley using archival audio that you had produced with Kevin back in, I think it was about 2009 or so. Do you mind talking a little bit about the process of doing that? Well, a lot of it was was from that interview in 2009. In 2009, as I'm sure everyone uh, knows, I did a documentary for the 50 Project, uh, where I spoke to a number of people. I spoke to uh, Tom Curley, Howard Liberman. I spoke to Wes Richards, uh, who uh, most pe- many people might not know. Uh, Wes Richards was a fixture in New York radio for decades and decades, but he was also a very good friend of Jeff, uh, Jeff Krauss. And uh, Actually, I went to Hofstra, but did not work at WVHC. But I spoke to all these people, and uh, one of the people I spoke with was Kevin. We were supposed to be talking about um, uh, public affairs radio, because I figured that would be about as obscure a thing as you could do for the 50 Project. And in the course of sitting down to talk to Kevin, we recorded about an hour and 10 minutes, and... uh, maybe 10 minutes about uh, public affairs radio and the rest uh, for me at that time was just kind of uh, not particularly useful. But when I started listening to the other episodes of the audio yearbook, I actually did hear Kevin in my head saying, when are they going to do my episode of the audio yearbook? And as I listened to uh, over and over and over, I realized that a lot of the questions that you asked were questions that Kevin had answered. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then I couldn't find the the recordings, but ultimately I did. I found it on an old hard drive. And it, as it turned out, I also had a lot of audio tape that, including one of Kevin's first newscasts on WVHC. Um, and I was able to work them in. I was able to do that because uh, when Kevin passed away, his uh, he, he uh, I inherited from him a TAC tape recorder, which he had bought so he could do a documentary for the 50 Project that he never did. But um, when he bought that, it didn't work. And uh, another Hofstra connection, Mark Wiener, actually helped him put that uh, back together. So I was able to do that project because I had not only that tape recorder, but I had some of Kevin's boxes of tapes. Um, so it was um, it was fun, to say the least. Well, I, I'm so glad you came up with the idea. And I, and I absolutely adored listening to it at least half a dozen times. And just, just for uh, his stories, but also the, the labor of love that you put into it and, and, um, making those stories come alive. It was really a wonderful thing. So thank you for, for doing that. And, uh, I'm just uh, so eternally grateful for it. Well, I can't say thank you enough. 
thank you for the opportunity to do it. It really helped me fulfill one of my uh, bucket list things, which was to do something which went viral. And I see that like 50 people downloaded that. So for me, that's viral. Yeah. So I, I can now cross that off of my list. Well, well, well done. And, and again, so thankful for doing that. But uh, let's get back to your time at WVHC in the early 1970s. Um, what positions or titles did you hold as an upperclassman at the station? Well, I was the uh, promotions and publications manager. And I was the remote chief, which were both a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, do you mind talking about the, the, the first position and what made you want to go for that? I don't think I wanted to go for it. I think mm-hmm. I, I just wanted a position and uh, Jeff sort of, uh, you know, he had X people and X positions and I ended up doing it. Um, uh, my primary responsibility was to do the program guide called the moderator, which was kind of an adventure because, um, and I don't, I don't think young people today if I can sound like my parents, will really appreciate the kind of work that went into it. Um, I would do it on a typewriter. And then we went to the university's publications department and it was typed on some kind of a special stencil for offset printing. And also, although they could do things like photographs, they would have to prepare a special plate and insert that in the... uh, the, the media that was used to generate the uh, the black and white uh, program guide, which was eight pages, uh, eight and a half by 11. And uh, I, I'm pleased to say that the only time I ever remember that having pictures is when I was doing that. And, uh, um, and then, of course, there was more fun because in order to mail it out, um, you had to address them and you address them with a thing that used uh, some kind of purple ink that was alcohol soluble. And all of the people who would get a copy had their names and addresses on these little metal plates. So you had to stand there and uh, turn a crank and feed all of the uh, the copies of uh, the program guide into that so that they could be mailed out in so the mail. So it's actual hard physical labor to to label these things and send them out. And who who's getting them? Were, were there were they listeners? Were they people in the in the media at, at newspapers? Who's who's getting these program guides? Anyone who wanted them, I'm sure that listeners certainly got them. Uh, and we probably sent one to Newsday and one to the Long Island Press. And uh, you know, it was an eclectic group of people. I'm sure. And was this done once a year or twice a year? How often did you have to do that? I think 10 times a year. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. That, that, that seems like a, like a big undertaking to have to do uh, so often. It, it, it really wasn't that big a deal. You know, I, I don't ever remember being the least bit perturbed about the, the amount of work that went into it. Okay. Uh, and I got uh, Another example of, of something that people today won't relate to, to do graphics. Mm-hmm. My friend Kevin, who we've already spoken about quite a bit, did some graphics for it. And in order to do that, he used something called transfer type. 
Um, I'll give a dollar to anyone under the age of 40 who can tell me what transfer type even is. Um, which it was, it was a kind of lettering that came on a wax sheet and to, uh, apply it to the paper, you used to have to rub the, uh, other side of the wax sheet and the letters would rub off of the wax sheet and go on to the paper, uh, they would transfer to the paper, uh, hence the name transfer type. So there, there's a little bit of minutia that's um, nigh on useless to anyone. Well, I mean, I think you, you said it earlier, it gives, it gives a, a real contrast to how things are done today when, you know, technology is such that people can do things on their phones or on a tablet and uh, it's relatively instantaneous, whereas this was uh, quite a labor that was involved. This wasn't just a, a, a throwaway position. You had to learn the skills and you had to take the time to do it right or else, um, you know, it looked like a disaster, I suppose. Well, it looked like a disaster anyway, but uh, <laughs> it, so, you, could, you could look at it and know what program was on at what time, at what day, and have a brief description of what it was about. And again, the contrast now today you go to a website or you go to a Facebook page and you can see what the schedule is and you can find things streaming. And this is this is as analog as it gets. It's a piece of paper that has uh, the, the schedule printed on it. So um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's, it's nice to, to see the contrast and and uh, where things have changed over time. I'll be happy to send exemplars of some of them uh, to anyone who's interested. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll get, we'll get on the mailing list and we'll get our own printing plates made. So we can mimeograph those, uh, before we send them out. In the, it, in the it wasn't mimeograph. It was, no. I think it was, it was some kind of offset process. Hmm. Um, you, you mentioned the purple ink and that made me think of the, well, the mimeograph, which I can smell right now. The, I can smell the purple that. ink, which when it, when it was used to generate documents was actually called ditto. Oh, uh, mimeograph man. was black. Mimi Ditto was very easy and, and not particularly easy. Uh, it was particularly easy to use. A teacher, rather than photocopying something, would type it out on a stencil, which is a word I was looking for before. You type it out on a stencil and then uh, you could run it on a machine. It was very easy. And of course, you could huff all that alcohol while you were doing it. <laughs> mimeograph was a different technology and the mimeograph stencil was really uh, 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 quite a pain in the neck to have to uh, produce. I, I don't think I ever learned to produce a mimeograph stencil. Hmm. Um, so there, there's an ancient technology that I'm not familiar with. Okay. I feel like we should have a quiz at the end of this and, and give away some sort of prize based on all the technology you're about to talk about. Um, speaking of talking about technology, one of your positions was as remote chief. Uh, what made you want to go for that? Was that something well, you volunteered for or was that given to you? I'm sure I did volunteer for that. Um, I like that because you got a key. Mm. <laughs> Actually, I think many of us had keys. That was sort of a, uh, a sign that you were, uh, an official radio station guy. They would issue you a key, but I had a key to the crypt. Mm-hmm. The crypt was our equipment locker, which was under a stairway in the basement of Memorial Hall. And in it were um, tape recorders, microphones, cables. Um, and crypt was a good name for it because it was crypt-like. 
My favorite thing in the crypt, which never actually I never actually got to use, was a tape recorder called the Butoba, uh, which was made in Eastern Europe, I think, in the 1950s. Um, oddly enough, uh, I heard Gary Armstrong mention the Butoba on a YouTube show that he does with Tom Curley. Mm-hmm. But by the time I got to the Butoba, it was made out of some cheap 1950s plastic and the plastic case was all cracked and it also had some kind of a metal uh, framework a metal chassis and the metal chassis was all bent and twisted so i got I, when i heard about the butoba i got to see what it looked like but it was really not operational but we did have cables and microphones and um of course the the best part was as the remote chief you got to uh go to remotes and decide who got to do remotes, Hmm. um, which was big fun. Um, I heard in in one of the episodes, someone was talking about doing the uh, football games from the press box at Hofstra Stadium Hmm. and about the fact that the press box was right next door to the spotters booth. Uh, In fact, the years that I did it, it was the Hostra Spotters booth. And the press box was a two-story. Um, it was sort of a structure on the top of the bleachers. Uh, and to get to the press box, you act to get to our booth in the press box, you had to go up this strange ladder. You also had to lug all the equipment up and down the ladder into a hole in the floor. And uh, then we would typically have a microphone for the color guy and a microphone for the play-by-play guy. And we'd stick one out the window for the crowd noise. And um, where this comes into play is the spotter, in the years that I was doing it, it was the spotter for Hofstra, would often get animated or excited and would use words that, Maybe you didn't want on a family radio show. And of course, they would go right into that crowd microphone that we'd stuck out the window. Um, it, it was really, uh, it, it, it was fun because you got, you got to wear a headset, an official telephone operator headset. You could talk to the guy in the um, control room and uh, act very official. And I realized recently that I must have been really, really invested in doing the remotes because they used to have food for the visiting press in the press box, mostly for the people on the lower level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it dawned on me that in the entire time I did, I had to do quite a few basketball, uh, football games. I, I never actually had any of that food, oh. which in, in retrospect really surprised me is that I, I thought that, um, doing the broadcast was more important than free food. I have very specific recollections of uh, the quarter ends and we go to the break and throw it back to the studio. And as soon as the microphone is cut, Todd Schwartz, who was doing the play-by-play, bolted down that hole in the bottom of our broadcast booth down that ladder Mm-hmm. And two minutes later, I see what at the time seemed to me this old, old, old man had come back up 
with Todd. And it was actually Bob Murphy who was, uh, Bob Murphy was at the Hofstra game because he was going to do the play-by-play for something called the Boardwalk Bowl. I think it must have been the Hofstra CW Post game. And CW Post was in the Boardwalk Bowl. So he wanted to see CW Post play. And uh, one of the funny things to me is I, I just remember how old this guy was. And I figured out today that he was actually 49, yeah, which is like way younger than mm-hmm. I am now. So that that was great fun. And um, what was also great fun is uh, I remember going to Madison Square Garden uh, was one of the great remotes. Uh, and we used to do those things in those years over a standard telephone line. Um what today they would call a POTS, plain old telephone service. Hmm. And on the particular one that I did at Madden Square Garden, which was against Oral Roberts University, it occurred during a time when there was a telephone strike. Because when you did a remote, what in those days, one of the most important things to do, the most important thing to do is when you got to the remote, you had to look around for a pair of wires hanging off the wall with a tag on it which the phone company had left so that you could use the phone line. Right. And we got to Madison Square Garden and we go to the press box and there's no phone line. Um, because of the strike. Be- well, I assume it was partially because of the strike. So um, I just went nuts and was running around trying to figure out what to do. I remember at some point Todd went down to the floor of Madison Square Garden and met Oral Roberts, which I thought was pretty exciting. So I'm I'm ripping my hair out because I don't ever remember doing a game or doing any remote broadcast where we actually didn't get on the air. So I was beside myself. And after a lot of yelling and screaming and rending of garments, uh as the first half was ending, um, they got the phone line in. And then I looked around and I said, wait a minute, where's Todd? Todd Schwartz had had walked someplace else in the arena and had found an open phone line. So he, you know, it was a telephone. He found a telephone. So he had done the first half of the game over the telephone. So the game did get on the air with, uh, you know, possibly not quite as good audio quality. So uh, I love that story. Wow. That is a, that is resourcefulness uh, personified there. You have to figure out a way to, to get the, the game on the air and, and both you and Todd figured out ways to, to make it happen in, in very different ways. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, now as remote chief, was it, was it just sports that you were working on? Cause I think in our first conversation, you mentioned something about being like news operations director. Is that, is that sort I, of a twin job there? I was news operations director. I never thought of that as anything more than a title. The way the news department worked was, uh, for most of the time that, that initially that I was there, Todd Schwartz again. Um, was the news director initially. Todd was a legacy. We used to call him the Pooh. Uh, and the reason we called him the Pooh is because his brother, who had been at the news director at the station before we were there, was Marvy Pooh, 
So he was Toddy Poo, shortened to the Poo. Uh, and if we were doing something, it was it was done basically uh, by a committee. You know, we, we would discuss what had to be done and we would figure out a way to do it. I don't ever remember anyone pulling rank or saying, you have to do this because I'm the news director and you're only the news operations director. Uh, it was very non-hierarchical. But I did get the title. But we did we did do other kinds of remotes. The probably the coolest remotes were not done by, I want to say, the remote department, uh, as though that was an actual thing. Uh, they were done by Steve Epstein and Kev Riley. They did classical broadcasts, and for the classical broadcasts, uh, Steve and Kev uh, mostly did them uh, themselves. I think. Also, uh, from time to time, Jeff Krause or Frank Grunstein, who was the station manager, would get involved in doing uh, doing the uh, concert broadcasts. But I do remember doing the Hofstra Spring Carnival, and I especially remember it because it was done on the same day that Steve and Kevin were doing the Huntington Symph- Symphony. So uh, Steve and Kevin took all the good new equipment and that left me to do the remote from the Hofstra Spring Carnival. And we got to use the old equipment, which was a mixer called the Gates Dynamote. And boy, I love the Gates Dynamote. It had tubes in it. And although it used batteries, it used like like lead acid batteries that we never had. And it had a, a, a big meter that lit up and the needle would swing back and forth. Um, it was great. So... Uh, I have vivid recollections of doing, not only broadcasting that, but there was a point where I was actually the talent, and I use the term advisedly, for part of that broadcast. And um, Phil Selby uh, handled the board during the time that I was on the air. Uh, Phil Selby, I believe, is in the Hostel Radio Hall of Fame. He... uh, is a very important executive at CBS. Uh, was a great guy, and we had a lot of fun. You mentioned Steve Epstein and and Kev Riley and doing these uh, remote uh, broadcasts with with orchestras or or, uh, or musical groups. And and I asked Steve about this. I said, "Well, how did you how did you learn how to do these things? How did you learn how to mic a a room like this and and transmit things back?" and his answer was was a little sort of general. Is like, well, we we figured it out, and and so I guess I'm, I'll I'll throw that sort of question to you as well. How did you learn how to do these things? Was it was it trial and error? Was it asking or how how did you do that? Um, we figured it out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fair it enough. Was, it was. I, I'm sure someone at some point uh, showed me how to do a remote. Um, cause I didn't automatically know how to do a remote, but a lot, a lot of it was, if you had basic audio knowledge, uh, uh it was, uh, well, it wasn't common sense, but a lot of it was basic audio knowledge. And of course, most of what I did was just, I never mic'd an orchestra, so I didn't have to know how to do that. Um, but there were resources, uh, I suspect. Steve learned a bit from the people in the Hofstra music department, mm-hmm. which he was also associated with. Uh, Jeff was always a font of knowledge. And if Jeff didn't know something, uh, Jeff 
always knew who to ask. Hmm. So there was a network, there was a, there was a system of saying, well, we're not sure what to do. Let's ask this person and, and so on and so forth. So it, even if you couldn't figure it out yourself, there was sort of a team or a network to help you work things out. Correct. One of the people I remember was a very good friend of Jeff uh, named Ben Taylor, who was a recording engineer of some sort. And uh, I think from time to time, we would ask or someone would ask Ben Taylor questions. And so there was an, an outside voice to help out. Uh, yeah, actually many. Hmm. Jeff was really good at, at enlist, enlisting people to, uh, to help the station. And, uh, he had, the station had a network of friends of the station. Um, for example, I remember Tom, in Tom Curley's episode, he mentioned Admiral Miller. Admiral Miller was a friend of the station. So uh, even though the station was persona non grata in some parts of the uh, administration, Admiral Miller, who was in the public relations department of the the university, was always able to be helpful. Frank Easy was the head of the communications department, and he was a friend of the station. Uh, When you walked around the basement of Memorial Hall, there were all of these technical types. I, I remember, I don't remember his last name. There was a guy named Warren who had a lot to do with the, um, the TV equipment and the audio equipment. And um, Warren would always help us out if he could and we needed something. In the, uh, there was a shop, an electronic shop. And I remember hanging out with the chief engineer in the Hostra electronics shop, whose name was Frank Coutinho. Catunio, K2OMS was his call sign. And um, I used to go down at lunchtime and, uh, and hang out with, with Frank. And he would, he would you know, have soup and a sandwich and talk to his uh, ham radio friends. And I would, would hang out. And he would also, if we, if we needed something, we needed a cable or we needed, uh, I remember building a box with headphone jacks. He was always willing to help out. And Frank, uh, uh, Jeff knew people just all over the university, right. sort of, uh, who, who sort of helped us sub Rosa. I think one, uh, many people have mentioned this, but I think it bears repeating. One of the great talents of Jeff Krause was getting the resources necessary and then convincing people to do these things without pay, you may, you sort of fluffed off the idea earlier that that other title, the news operations director, that it was just a title. But that was a big reward to get sort of a reward or a key or, or some sort of recognition. And Jeff was just a mastermind at, at finding ways to get things done. And I, I don't I don't think there's enough ways to articulate that. But I, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up, that Jeff had that special talent. Well, I think it was more important during my years that in the later years when I think that the university actually gave him a budget. Hmm. Um, but we, we, he had something called university broadcast services. Right. And one of the things they would do is if, uh, the national association of accountants was having a meeting at Hostra, he would record it at, uh, university broadcast services would record it. And 
they would be paid uh, $27.42. We would be paid $22.47. And that was a way that Jeff made money. Um, and all kinds of things like that. Hmm. Um, I, I feel like before we started recording, you had made mention of wanting to talk about doing election night. And since we're talking about uh, equipment and resources and, and the network of people who supported, um, do you mind talking a little bit about doing election night coverage while you were at WVHC? I always loved election night. Um, in fact, when um, I graduated and uh, I was no longer working in radio, I was going to law school, I did a few election nights for WCTO, which is a place where I worked for a number of years, uh, because I just so love doing election night. But on election night in Nassau County in the 1970s, if you wanted to cover it, the place where you had to be was at the Nassau County Republican headquarters, mm -hmm. which in those years was in the Holiday Inn. And you wanted to be there, one because they got the best election results because right. the Republican Party had a giant network of people who had patronage jobs who would help them collect all the information. And also, in those years, most of the time, the winning candidates were Republicans. Right. So that was the second reason for being there. And in fact, Jeff would actually spring for a telephone for us at the Holiday Inn, which was a very big deal uh, that we, we would have any resource like that. So I also remember that, again, all the same people keep showing up in these stories. Kevin Riley used to anchor election night or not. I don't know how many times he did it, but he did it several times, which was a pretty interesting job because in addition to being at the Nassau County Board of Election, uh, Nassau County Republican uh, committee, you would have people at the Board of Elections, you would have people at the uh, where the Nassau County Democrats met, and um, you really had to be able to think and speak on your feet while sitting down. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember we're going to do election night, and I know that Todd Schwartz and I are going to the Nassau County Republican headquarters at the Holiday Inn. And being kind of a belt suspenders guy before uh, election night on election day, I drove over there and I walked into the ballroom and I spoke to some people and looked around. And what I found out is that the press area was at one end of the ballroom and the podium where people were going to be speaking and where people were going to be announcing results was at the other end of the ballroom. Hmm. So I went back to the station. And again, this is all this stuff is interconnected. We had a cable that was used for broadcasting the Huntington Symphony. It was an audio cable. It was mono cable because we were in mono. It was 200 feet of Belden 4751 cable. You know, I'm not sure if 4751 was actually the right designation, but it was, it was 200 feet of cable. And I said to Frank Grunstein, who at the time was the station manager, uh, I'm going to need that cable. And he said, you can't have that cable. Well, what do you mean I can't have that cable? Well, we need that. And if you take it and break it, then we won't have it. 
<laughs> so um, I called in binding arbitration with Jeff Krause, and he gave me the cable. Hmm. I then went back to the Holiday Inn and stood on a stepladder with a box of paper clips. It, the ballroom had a drop ceiling uh-huh. you know, with, with those soft white tiles. Yep. And I, I put a paper clip in that ceiling every two feet over the entire length of the ballroom. And I hung the cable from the ceiling so that come election night, we were able to broadcast live everything that was going on on the podium. Uh, and we were the only ones who could do that. The commercial stations couldn't do that because the commercial stations would send a guy who knew what he was doing and was actually paid money, but they would send one guy with a limited amount of equipment. Um, so while everyone else had to go to one end of the uh, ballroom and record stuff and then walk to the other end of the ballroom to feed it, we had it on live. Hmm. So uh, that was that falls under the category things I was proudest of. Wow. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that in a lot of these interviews, and, and some of this is fun and exaggeration and memory, but the description of, of the studios and the equipment sometimes is, has bordered on the uh, uh, just downright mean. I think uh, pe- people have portrayed the conditions at WVHC and the studios and the, and the things that you had as, as not necessarily up to snuff. And, and like you said, Jeff didn't have much of a budget to operate with, so he was getting it wherever he could. But I don't know that that's necessarily a fair or an accurate depiction of the equipment. And I, I don't know that there's anybody else who would, who would rise to the occasion and defend the equipment of WVHC as, as you would. So is it is it fair to say that, that these various stories are, are true, that things were falling apart and held together with spit and duct tape and imagination, or was it better than has been depicted? The physical plant was falling apart. The mm. equipment itself, none of the equipment was falling apart because Ted Ronneberger was amazing. Mm-hmm. And by the way, apparently he still is amazing. He's now, I ran into him at the Hall of Fame induction ceremony, and he's now the chief engineer of WGBB, which I find extremely funny. But he kept everything working really well. Um, so the physical plant was, was, was dumpy, but the, the equipment we had, a lot of it, most of it was industry standard at the time. We had the uh, Gates Diplomat, was a wonderful board. I mean, if you find people who worked in radio, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, they adore that board, uh, as do I. I worked at WGSM, and we had the stereo version of that board as our air board. Very decent piece of equipment. We had um, the uh, two Ampex 350s, which also very top notch and they were very well maintained which is good because if you don't maintain those well the uh tensions between the reels gets kind of messed up and you can have a uh an unfortunate situation um so i mean we didn't have the best cart machines but we had good cart machines a lot of that stuff was was donated i think the the gates board was actually purchased Hmm. I, for a time, owned an earlier Gates board that the station had, which was called the Gatesway, except 
by the time I got it, most of the innards had been gutted and I bought it for a hundred bucks from the university. Uh, the funniest thing is the power supply for that uh, had a, an inventory label on it. And the inventory label said Dumont Broadcasting System, because apparently at some point the university received a bunch of stuff from the Dumont Broadcasting System, which I think went out of business around 1956. And the, and the, uh, and the, the basic signal chain, starting with the microphone through the board or through the tape machines, um, through, uh, the Max Brothers, Automax, and Volumax. It was all pretty standard industry stuff. And um, uh, yeah, if it didn't sound good, it was because we didn't sound good, not because of the equipment. We did have the 16-inch um, Gates transcription turntables, which were uh, some people didn't like because they took half a turn to come up to speed. So you couldn't put a record on, cue it up, and then hit the switch. Hmm. You could do it, but you had to know you had to know how to time it. You had to know that that if you wanted uh, if you wanted the record to start properly, you had to back it off half a revolution, and then you had to know to turn it on uh, like a second early, a second before you wanted to hear the audio. So some people didn't like that, but we also used to use those. Um, we used to play 78 records. Sometimes we had special styluses. Um, right. and, uh, there were a couple programs that used it. Uh, Mark Adler had a show called Genesis of a record. And, uh, Frank Pascal had a show called the swing years. And they would both sometimes use 78 RPM records. And, uh, so it was good that we had a turntable that did 78 RPMs. Hmm. So it wasn't necessarily that the broadcast equipment was bad. Like you said, the plant, the, the, the building itself, the, the, the carpets uh, in the basement of the little theater and, and whatever was, was left over, whatever sort of desks and equipment were, were in the offices. Those things weren't necessarily in, in good shape, but uh, the broadcast equipment was, was well-maintained and well-loved. Well Is that fair? That's fair. And a lot of it, I think, was donated, mm -hmm. which which sort of brings up another pretty good story that I, I guess the statute of limitations is probably run, so I can probably <laughs> tell it. Um, there are all kinds of things that you use at a radio station that um, ports that cost a lot of money, uh, patch bays, uh, some kinds of furniture. So during my tenure at Hofstra at some point, Teddy Ronneberger was working at WMCA and WMCA moved to new studios and they were going to let us have some stuff that they didn't really need that was surplus, uh, including things like tables and patch bays and probably equipment racks. Um, nothing sexy, no, no mixers, not even any microphones. But the only problem we had is they were moving out of their old studios and someone had to go in and get it. Mm -hmm. Now, the proper procedure to have followed would have been for Jeff Krause to order a Hostra University truck. Um, the problem with that is, first of all, you would then be paying Hostra University union 
workers to operate it. And you would also, um, particularly since we did that late at night, if you were going to get Hofstra University union employees to work late at night, you would be paying a lot of money from your budget, which we didn't have. So the alternative was to rent a truck. I don't remember if it was U-Haul or Ryder or exactly who it was rented from, but we rented a truck and one of my very dear friends, uh, a very big uh, figure in the radio station in my years, who will remain nameless, went and picked up the truck and was driving it around in the streets around Hostra and sort of forgot that the truck is taller oh, no. than a car. Mm. And in the course of driving around the truck, uh, hit a tree and put a huge dent in it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Needless to say, Jeffrey was upset because um, if if this had not gone well, he, he could have been fired or worse because not only was he breaking all these rules, breaking the union rules, but this was something that there was no insurance for. Right. So Jeffrey not only not only had to pay to have the truck fixed and make sure nobody found out about it, but... Um, you know, it, it was just entirely a bad scene. And yet, Jeffrey did not ultimately uh, go ballistic. Mm. That was another thing. I've noticed so many people in the uh, the episodes that were saying, oh, we're afraid of Jeff. And he, he's such a uh, um, a scary figure. And he, he absolutely wasn't. I knew that, you know, in the first two weeks. Because he would raise his voice, but he never hit anyone. He never did anything really bad to anyone. So once you knew that, he wasn't really scary at all. Uh, and he was always a lot of fun. Well, he wasn't always a lot of fun. He was frequently a lot of fun. One of the things you suggested that we could discuss was uh, a story that you never tell. Yes. And this is it. Okay. Uh, for a while... I did uh, a music show um, on Friday nights for two hours. And in, in, in listening to all of the various people talk about what was going on uh, at the station in various generations, I realized that when we were there, often being at the radio station was like being at a big party. Um, not that there was any shenanigans or wild goings on or alcohol or drugs, but a lot of people would show up. So on Fridays, for example, Friday evenings, um, frequently we would get the kids from Oceanside, which include Lee Harris, who you spoke to. Mm-hmm. Um, Lee Harris would come with a couple of the friends and they could come because it was Friday. It wasn't a school night. So they would come hang out and there was a, a news guy and there was a staff announcer and then people's friends would show up. Uh, someone who was frequently my engineer was a guy named Mark Krebs and his high school age brother would sometimes come with him. Uh, Alan, who also became an engineer. They were both pretty good engineers. I would never think to tell uh, Mark that 
at the time, but he was uh, really a pretty good engineer. But so there were always all of these people in, in the relatively small space and, you know, just doing their own thing and sort of having fun. So I would was doing a music show and I would try to play the weirdest stuff I could find. And I, for example, I tried to play every known version of Johnny B. Good. Wow. Um, so I, I I would be rummaging through record albums and I would run from the studio where the record albums were into the control room and hand the engineer a record and say, here, play cut number three. And he would put it on the turntable and play it. Well, I did that. I was doing that and I was running back and forth and I had given him a record and then I ran back and was looking for another record and I'm walking back to the control room. I'm actually in the door from the studio to the hallway. And I remember specifically where I was because it was a, I, it was a Frank Zappa song. And the song is called Mother People. Uh-huh. And standing in specifically in that doorway with one ear listening, I hear the words, shut your fucking mouth. And I turned white mm. and I didn't say anything. And I kind of watched to, to see if the lights were flashing. That meant the phone was ringing. And um, you know, I continued on my way. And I never said anything about that to anyone. And I never heard about it. So. Yikes. You got away uh, with one there. Well, they always just say Jeff was always listening, but apparently he wasn't. Mm. got away with one there yeah that's that is that is the danger and uh uh once in a while they 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 slip through but no no harm no foul i suppose um is there a story that you always tell when you're talking about the radio station yes we used to have um usually had a a music program from 10 to midnight uh and many people will not really be aware that we were only on from 6 p.m. to midnight, Monday to Friday, and noon to midnight, Saturday and Sunday. Um, so the, the music programs are really, uh, you know, they were fun to do. And I used to engineer for Tom Curley. He used to do a show called Night Song. And that was a good time. And a lot of people would like float in and out when Tom was doing Night Song. So we're doing night song one day and everything is going normal. And then, you know, I, out of the corner of my eye, I see some people uh, who had just walked into the control room and I look up and there's these like three or four guys, including one really big, mean looking guy. Um, if you, if you've seen the uh, uh, nerd movies, Revenge of the Nerd movies, mm-hmm. he looked like Ogre. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so, yes, can I help you? And they started looking very menacingly at me and they handed me a reel of tape and they say, play this. And, um, I don't know how I had, I, I had worked it out, but these were guys from the merchant Marine Academy at Kings point, Kings point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kings point. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were going to, play us in football not us the radio station because that would have been a disaster (laughs) but they were going to play Hofstra in football and this was their idea of a prank and they had handed me 
some tape that they had uh, um, produced and really looking very menacing. And um, so I took it and I put it on a tape machine. And uh, at, at that point, Tom came into the control room. And I think, um, no, actually, I remember quite vividly that Kit Hunt was there because, um, you know, we, we, found, we figured out what was going on. And I, I said to them, you know, if you're from the Merchant, Merchant Marine Academy, maybe you should bear in mind that what you're doing is a federal crime. And I remember very, very vividly, Kit Hunt said to me, oh, Steve, shut up. <laughs> um, so I took the tape. And um, I played it in the control room. I played it in the audition channel. So they thought it was going out over the air. And it wasn't. And there was a record on. And in fact, I think I actually segued to the next record. Uh, and, and, And they thought what they were doing, what they had given me was on the air. And it wasn't. And at some, at some point, shortly after all this happened, Hostra Security showed up. And, um, you know, Hostra Security was sort of its, its own joke. Right. Um, they were mostly somewhat older guys. And again, probably 30 or 40 years younger than I am now. And, you know, one guy shows up, you know, with gray hair. And what's going on? And uh, I don't know who told him what was going on. And he says to the guys from uh, Kings Point, you guys better get out of here, mm-hmm. which they did. <laughs> so the, the radio station was hijacked. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that was, uh, that, so that was big fun. Do, uh, do you remember what was on the tape that they gave you that you put in audition? I don't. I just remember it was very, very amateurish. And in fact, um, I don't remember whether or not I gave it back to them. I don't know whatever happened to it. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Okay, so we have a story that you always tell and a story that you never tell. Um, is there a song, is there an event, is there a game or, or an election night that defines your time at the station? When you think about your time at WVHC, there's one story that says this is, this is what it was all about. Well, one of the great joys of my time at Hostra was uh, the summers because I commuted. And I, so mm-hmm. I was around all the time and I got to do a lot of stuff during the summer because all of the uh, kids who lived at Hostra went home. So I got to do one of these music shows. I think it was Night Song with Jeff Krauss. And Jeff was just really wonderful to work with. Mm-hmm. So I, rem- I remember there, there was a time when Jeff put together three songs that were all related. And it's, it's always bothered me because I can't think of the third song. The two songs that I do remember, one was uh, The Circle Game, which was, I think, was that Joni Mitchell? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would sing it, but it w- that would be cruel. 
and the other was the Great Mandala by Peter, Paul, and Mary. And they, they both went together so perfectly along with the third one because they were all basically about the same thing, uh, uh, the circle of life. And uh, that always makes me remember Jeff. I'm a mess. No, that's that's. Thank you for sharing that. It's uh, it just goes to show how powerful the relationships were, and and how important this was at a very important time of life. And uh, I I get choked up whenever I hear me and Bobby McGee, because I remember being in in the studio. I was tracking. I wasn't even really at the station yet, and Jeff came in on a Friday night and asked Joe Romano to play that. And every time. Every time I hear that song, I am taken back to that moment because it was, it was, it was a throwaway moment for him, but for me, it was, it was something magical and important, and and uh, I think that really comes through in your story. So thank you for sharing that. Another interesting thing um, about that song, kind of to illustrate the fact that everything is co- connected in one way or the other, is that's the song that Kevin had recorded. Paul Stuckey singing at, was it Paul Stuckey or Peter Yarrow, wh- whoever it was, singing at the anti-war rally that I, I used uh, in that piece I did about Kevin. Mm. So mm. It's, it's all connected. Yeah. Um, is there any accomplishment or moment that you are most proud of or, or say, that we, we were really good or I did a really great thing there. Or I'm, I'm just, I'll always be proud of that. Is there something that stands out for you? Yeah, election night. Mm. We've already covered it. Okay. Um, is there something that you miss most about working at the station? Is there something that stuck with you over time? Well, it was a chance to hang out with, with all your friends and just, you know, do goofy things and experiment. And I mean, the whole, the whole experience was, um, I miss the whole experience. Uh, it, 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 it sort of peaked that, that camaraderie, that, uh, the whole attitude of, you know, we're at the beginning of our lives and we're, we're going to, we don't know where we're going, but we're going full speed ahead anyway. Um, and then that's that's sort of when I first started working as a responsible adult. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, uh, you had that kind of I had that kind of experience. You, you know, you go out, you you go drinking with your friends, or you go doing stuff with your friends. Um, <laughs> uh, I just thought of a story that I probably shouldn't tell. Um, but over, over years, you know, there's less and less and less of that. So I think what I miss is probably something that most people as they get older miss, which is, you know, you become more boring and less interesting and that although you're more comfortable and, uh, I'm, I mean, I've done a lot of great stuff that I've been so thrilled with, but, um, really those days were the most fun. And, uh, I mean, I miss everything. Hmm. Well, of course I, I've, I've forgotten the bad stuff, but, uh, um, so here's a story that, uh, that really has 
to do with the radio station only because it involves people from the radio station. Um, one of my contemporaries at the radio station was a guy named Rick Fisher. I could do 40 minutes on Rick Fisher. Rick Fisher was a great friend. Um, if I can stretch this out a little bit, in the spring of uh, 1973, we had the dinner and then we had an after party at uh, uh, someone's house, someone you know. And for the first time in my life, I uh, partook in something that's now legal, but then was not. Mm. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. So the my last two months of college, every day for the last two months of college, uh, I got stoned with a bunch of people, including Rick Fisher. And then we went bowling at the Garden City Bowl. Mm-hmm. But... Um, when I was 18, one of my friends was going to go off to Vietnam. And he said, before I go to Vietnam, I want to go parachuting. And so we did the research. I think I did the research. And we found out that at um, a place called Parachutes Incorporated in Lakewood, New Jersey, you could pay 100 bucks, and they would give you a class and then after the class, they would give you a coverall and a helmet and a parachute. And then you would go up in an airplane. Um, my friend in 1970 went up in a Norseman. And then in 1973, uh, I, I was not allowed to jump out of the airplane in 1970 because I wasn't 21 years old. Hmm. And my parents were just not going to go along with that. So... Fast forward to um, actually 1974. Mm-hmm. I was still in touch with Rick Fisher, and I used to hang out a lot with John DeBella. John DeBella at that time was the manager of a movie theater. Mm-hmm. He, b- by the way, recently retired after 41 years in Philadelphia radio. He was uh, a top-rated morning man for most of those 41 years. Sure. Um, so also, but also a, a you know, very uh, big WVHC guy. And so I'm talking with, with Rick and I, I may have been talking with John and somehow it, it comes out, Hey, let's, uh, let's all go jump out of a, an airplane. <laughs> so I said, oh, I know all yeah. about that. Let's do it. And I, I said to uh, John, I said, we're going next Wednesday. <laughs> and John said, humla, 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 humla. <laughs> but, but Rick and I did go and, and, and jumped out of an airplane. And then uh, the following year, um, I, we did it again. Uh, not with wow. Rick, but with, um, with uh, another great hospital radio guy, Chris Zizzo. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, um, subsequent to that, I remember flying at, with me in the pilot seat, by the way, flying up to Orange, Massachusetts. So, uh, Chris could jump. Wow. Um, I don't, I don't know what this has to do with Hoster radio, but it, it, other than they're all Hoster radio people. Well, I, I think the question was, you know, what do you miss? the the most and it's it's the camaraderie and it's the hey let's try this thing let's do this thing and 
and some maniac suggests jumping out of a plane and some other maniac says, I'll do the research. And next thing you know, you're jumping out of a plane. And, and I think that's, that's something that is particular to that time in life when you're willing to, to try things and you have a group of people who are like, sure, let's do it. Let's go for it. So Tom Curley told the story in his episode about meeting Father Nadolny. Uh-huh. Father Nadolny was a guy, Edmund Nadolny was from the communications office of the Diocese of Hartford and used to send out these um, uh, tapes and records for broadcast. And they were little featurettes. Uh, the ones that I used to use were called Take a Stand. And they were like five minutes. And what I would do is um, edit out like 20 seconds. And they were goofy for the full five minutes, but they were really goofy if you just played the uh, the first 20 seconds. And what I would do is I would intersperse those in music on my radio show. So mm-hmm. you would be listening to Frank Zappa or something really obscure, and you would hear Father Nadalny say, don't pull your love out on me, baby. This is the cry of so many people today. And it would it would be followed on the full feature with a, a discussion of some topic. But without that discussion, it was just kind of completely random and therefore, to me, very funny. So Tom is is at ABC, and he meets Father Dolny. He gets called in to record something, and uh, he gets called into the goes into the studio and a guy sticks out his head and says, I'm Father Nadalny. Oh, wow. And Tom has all he can do to not break out laughing hysterically. So Tom told me that story back in 2009 when I did the documentary. So at the dinner in 2009, I'm talking with um, Chris Zizzo and I said, you know, Tom told me this story about when he was at ABC and he met Father Nadolny. And it, yeah, I told Chris the story and Chris looked at me I, yeah, with wide-eyed amazement. And he said, wait a minute. Because Chris had worked at ABC. It was ABC Radio Network News. He had done summer relief there at some point. And um, Chris said to me, that happened to me. <laughs> that exact thing happened to me. So I thought that was pretty good. That's and cool. I noticed when we did the last episode and I mentioned that I was the director of religious affairs, mm-hmm. you didn't question it. You just let it go by. I, I, I did. There are so many other stories and, and it was on my list of things to ask about. So would you mind talking about that a little bit? Oh, I wasn't the director of religious affairs. It was a title I gave myself so that we could get more stuff from Father Nadolny. Dear Father Nadolny, we are a small but honest college radio station, and we would like to get more of your programming. So it was completely made up. Okay. Well, 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 there you go. That's, uh, that's, I don't know if it's honest, but it's ambitious and, and I like it. It fits, it fits in with the pattern of, of getting things done at the station. Very good. Um, so let me tell you another thing that's really bugging me. Okay. I've been listening to all these episodes where people talking about, are talking about having to go take the FCC third class radio telephone license test. Terrifying. And, oh, it was so hard. Oh, I studied for weeks. That was awful. I, I didn't sleep. I took that 
test when I was 14 and I found it was about on par with the um, test that you take when you get your driver's license. And uh, I studied for the test with a little booklet on the subway on my way into Manhattan. However, I do remember one of the questions. One of the questions was, when another operator tells you your voice is distorting, what should you do? And I think the real answer, I don't remember the exactly, but I think it's you should turn down the gain right. on the transmitter. However, one of the other answers, the one which was not correct, was report the insult to the FCC immediately. <laughs> that seems appropriate. That seems like what the FCC wants. But uh, yes, I would I would say either either turning down the the, the pot or or perhaps uh, changing the position of the microphone, maybe moving off the microphone a little bit. But uh, I don't I don't know if that would have passed. But so something that um, you know I can go on for hours. Um, something that that nobody discussed that I think really needed some discussion is the shows that people did at WVHC that weren't really shows that didn't actually exist. And um, when I was there, I'm hang- sitting around, hang out in the office one day. And this is how stuff usually went down. Someone would come up to me and say, hey, can you record this for me? Or, hey, do you want to do that for me? So this, uh, this young man, whose name was Rob, and I never remember either his real last name or his air name. But Rob says to me, I'm uh, recording an interview with Black Sabbath. Can you engineer it for me? And wow. I said, sure. Now, Rob had, through someone, had some connection to the music industry. So he used to get these do these interviews with uh, musical acts. Except there was no radio show. He didn't do the a radio show. Nobody knew why he did them or what they were for, but he can you do that for me? I said, sure. And I pack up all the stuff and we get in his car and he had a cool car. He had a uh, Dodge Challenger with a 346 pack. Um, and it was um, a, the color plum. It was purple. It's, it's called plum something. Plum right. crazy. Um, and he was also, I, uh, I can say this now. I couldn't say it then. I had such a crush on that guy. (laughs) So we, 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 we drive into Manhattan and we go to the holiday inn on the West side on 57th street. And we go into a suite and, um, somebody who I assume was from management explains to Rob that Ozzy Osbourne won't be joining us because he has jet lag. So it was Black Sabbath minus Ozzy Osbourne. I remember nothing of the actual interview, but I remember that um, uh, Tony Iommi, who was one mm-hmm. of the members of Black Sabbath, every 30 seconds would offer me a cigarette. And I also remember having a conversation with him about the fact that they had to leave some of his, their equipment back, some of their speaker cabinets back in England because they were too big. And um, years later, that morphed in my mind to uh, him saying, most people have guitar amplifiers that go up to 10, but ours are special. Ours are going up to 11. 
which is, uh, I, I hear no recognition from you. It's from Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. Tap, yeah. Yeah, of course it and is. When I first saw Spinal Tap, I said, wait a minute. I know those guys. Those are those guys <laughs> from a Holiday Inn. So, and, and we actually did go and we saw them perform at um, uh, the Fillmore East. Nice. Along with the Jay Giles band, which was a brand new band at that time, yep. and an act called Sir Lord Baltimore. Mm. So, whatever happened to that interview? Nothing. I, I mean, I don't know what happened to it. He did these interviews, and he did them with other people that I wasn't privy to. And you know, it was for a show that didn't exist. That's for his podcast. And then. Well, I don't think there were podcasts. <laughs> there wasn't an internet right. in, in uh, to send things to send data over a wire in uh, 1972. You used a teletype terminal. Yeah, and it was uh, the storage medium was punched paper tape. Uh, and then there there was a. Um, I remember being in the control room one day and looking up at the cart rack. And off to the side, there's a whole set of carts, and they're labeled "Music to Play Freddie On," "Music to Play Freddie Off," and you know we we didn't really have anyone named Freddie. Right. There was a guy named Freddie Seltzer, and Freddie Seltzer thought he was going to be the next Johnny Carson, so he did an audition tape where he was the Johnny Carson character, and he had a sidekick. The sidekick, you know, it was laughable because the sidekick was, he was like faux Ed McMahon. Right. And he he did a series of audition tapes and they were all awful and they never went anywhere. But those carts were in the cart rack. You know, music to play Freddie on, music to play Freddie off. And subsequently, uh, by the late 1980s, he had become a dentist and he used to do his own TV commercials on cable TV. Uh, and they would end by saying, we also have special care for cowards. So that was the Freddie Seltzer show. Wow. And, and, and also, this is obscure. There was a guy named Joe Katz, longtime fixture at the radio station. And I never really knew what he did. But at some point, Joe Katz had like failed to do some assignment. And to make up for it, was supposed to do a documentary. And the documentary was supposed to be about Phoenix House. So uh, whenever you would ask about the uh, the Phoenix House documentary, oh, yeah, yeah, we're working on it. And uh, I'm, Jeff Krause was somehow involved with that. So Jeff Krause was always a little bit piqued because he had pulled Joe Katz's ass out of a fire by getting him uh, this concession that instead of whatever uh, he was supposed to do, that he could do the Phoenix House document, Phoenix House documentary, and I don't think he ever did it. Hmm. Yeah, the the best laid ambitious plans sometimes don't work out. So let me tell you about the time I met Sweet Olson. Yeah. Uh, in April, my my radio program, if I can call it that. Um, started in, I think, April of 1971. And as I mentioned, I used to like to do weird stuff. So I walk into the record store 
which is two stores down from the Dirty Movie Theater in Hempstead on Main Street and across the street from the luggage store where many WVHC uh, personnel, including myself and Howard Liberman, had worked at one time or another. Okay. So I go into this record store, and it's a record store that specializes in ethnic records. And I wanted to get a copy of Who Stole the Kishka? So a guy walks up to me. And he says, hey, uh, how, what can I, how can I help you? I said, well, I, I want to get a copy of Who Stole the Kishka? And this person is Sweet Olson. Mm-hmm. And Sweet Olson and I start to chat. And at some point, he climbs up on a stool and takes down what looked like a child's Victrola and plays for me Who Stole the Kishka. So I had the record I wanted. And then I started explaining to him that I wanted it because I had a radio show with WVHC. And he said, oh, you know, I worked at it when it was a carrier current station at Hostra. And it was Sweet Olsen. Mm -hmm. Okay, this this is fine. And from the conversation I had with him, he had had no contact with or any idea of what was going on at WVHC um, for probably decades. Hmm. And a couple of months pass and there's an announcement. We're going to have a new show. And the new show is called with an open ear. And who does with an open ear? Hans Sweet Olsen. Wow. Now I never found out how Hans Sweet Olsen got back to WVHC and came to do that show. It happened sometime between April of that year when I met him and when he started doing the show a few months later. Uh, and I, I've never known the story, but I always hypothesize or perhaps fantasize that I had reminded him of the station and it caused him to uh, look into it and get in touch with Jeff Krause. And uh, so I'm indirectly responsible for the long reign of Sweet Olson at the radio station. Wow. That's just a hypothesis on my part. It may have no validity whatsoever. I like to think of myself as the, um, the Forrest Gump of Hofstra Radio. <laughs> uh, around 2008, I poked my head in the radio station and I met... Um, uh, Bruce Avery? Bruce. I met Bruce. And you know, we got along famously. And we had a good time. We had a long chat. And Bruce said to me, you know, we're, we're doing this thing and for 50... It's the 50th anniversary in a while. And um, we're trying to get a, uh, a list of people who were there in the past. And he actually gave me a pr- uh, printout of people that the university was aware of that had a WVHC connection. I said, well, do you know about Lee Harris? Lee Harris. Who Lee Harris? You know, Lee Harris, he's the morning anchor on WINS, uh, the number one news radio station in the country. And he makes a note, Lee Harris. And as you know, um, at some point after that, Lee Harris became quite mm-hmm. involved with the alumni Absolutely. association. So uh, again, I don't, I don't know if uh, it could be a fantasy on my part to think that I was in some small way responsible for bringing Lee Harris back to Hofstra Radio. But um, I like to think that 
that's how it uh, happened. Well, un- until we get a conflicting story or, or the actual facts, we'll go with that. We'll call it the story and we'll see if anybody calls in to correct us. Um, if you could time travel for a very short amount of time and go back to meet Stevie at 18 or 19 years old, is there a piece of advice that you would give to him about working at the radio station? Something you wish you knew now? Um, well, I, I would have said to him, you know, you're never going to get rid of the glottal forget ever being on the air anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, um, I don't know, you know, it's, it's more of an adventure if you just do it and find out rather than, uh, you know, what fun is it if someone tells you? Okay. And besides, if I did tell me, first of all, I would say, who is this really, really, really old person talking to me? <laughs> and the other thing I would have said is, you know, this person is full of shit and I don't buy it. What do they know? All right. So- sounds like an appropriate response. Now, a number of people have asked me and they say, well, I heard this interview with so-and-so or with this one. Whatever happened to them or what, what, what do they do after they left Hofstra Radio? So uh, my question to you is, uh, you have all these experiences and these stories and these tapes and, and all this. What did you bring from Hofstra Radio with you into your adult grown-up life and career? Well, it, it was really uh, a lot of life lessons. You learned how to work with people. You, uh, you know, you learned a lot of social skills. Um other other than that, I mean, editing tape was uh, really not a big deal. Right. But so so many life lessons, uh, you know, lifelong friendships. But I, I did I learn anything? I, I don't think I I, I can't point to uh, any good lesson that I learned. But the experience of, of of trying things and 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 working with people and 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 finding ways to reach your goals—that's something you carried with you, I think. Yeah, and and you learned that um, sometimes to get stuff done, you had to just kind of do what you had to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Stevie, I the the plan is is to do two interviews and say thank you for being part of the history of Hofstra Radio and for sharing all this. But I I have a feeling you've got more stories and perhaps more corrections to come along as more as more interviews. Can we can we make a a, a promise to to catch up at some point and and tell some more stories? Yes, I noticed we haven't spoken of Kirby yet, and uh, I have a lot to say about Kirby. Okay, well, let's let's call that a teaser, and we'll make sure that people come back and and listen to Volume Three. Stevie, this is this has been absolutely tremendous. Um, I love all these stories. Thank you for sharing, and uh, and sincerely, I, d- I do want to hear more from you. Thank you so much. Well, I would not have missed it.